we can shut her down. All right, this morning, what I wanted to do is we get into Daniel chapter two further. As we, we start to look at Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's really the first interaction, the first place in Daniel, which is a book, which is a considered a, a prophetic book. It's a historical and a prophetic book. It's the first place that we get into prophecy. And what I want to do this morning is kind of take some time and build ourselves a biblical foundation upon which we can interpret prophecy. Because there seems to be, um, there's a lot of interest in prophecy. There's a lot of uh, desire to take the current events that we see around us and impose a biblical understanding upon those events. And that's not interpretation. That's contextualization. And they're not the same thing. And we want to be careful. It's not wrong or bad to look around and to recognize the seasons. We should be aware of what's going on around us. We should be aware of those things that are, that are happening and how they may affect us. We need to be wise. We need to be careful with the time that we have. But what we don't want to do is say, this is what God's word means because of what's happening here. What we're going to find, one of the key things to interpreting scripture is that God has oversight over all of Scripture. And these prophecies, consider this, these prophecies that are being spoken are spoken to a people in a specific time, and it meant something to them in their time. They didn't need to wait for the news to tell them what it meant. And so we, we do ourselves a, a disservice, and not only that, we disservice and we degrade the authority of God's word by interpreting it through the lens of the nightly news. So uh, I want to look at some things and, 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 like I said, build a foundation for interpreting prophecy. We're going to spend a lot of time looking at prophecy through Daniel, and so let's have a good foundation. Uh, the primary word in the Old Testament that's translated prophet is the Hebrew word uh, nabi, nabai. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. It's transliterated N-A-B-I. And what it literally means is mouthpiece. That's the literal interpretation. That's, that's literally what it means. And the first time that we find it, the first time that we encounter that word in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 20, verse 7. And that word is applied to Abraham. And when you go look there, because oftentimes the first mention of something in Scripture is insightful, it's not. It just says, Abraham was a prophet. But when we get to the second usage, we find that God himself defines what it says. He defines what he intends a prophet to be. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 4, and let's look at this for just a moment. Genesis chapter 4, which feels like the wrong reference, but I'm pretty sure that these are in Exodus. So turn to Exodus chapter 4. Yeah, 
these are both in Exodus, Exodus chapter four, Exodus chapter seven, because they're all about Moses. And if you're in Genesis chapter four, there's not a whole lot of people around yet. <laughs> Exodus chapter four. Now, in Genesis, excuse me, in Exodus chapter four, we find Moses, he's encountered uh, God in the burning bush. And part of the interaction that he has with him is this idea that I can't speak, that he, he, and many scholars think that maybe he has some impediment, something that keeps him from speaking uh, or having confidence in speech at least. And so in verse 16, uh, let's actually begin in verse 14. Moses makes this, he expresses this concern in verse 14, the Lord answers, says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, is not Aaron the Levite thy brother? I know that he can speak well, and also, behold, he comes forth to meet thee. And when he seeth thee, he shall be glad in his heart. And thou shalt speak unto him, and put words in his mouth, and I will be with thy mouth, and with his mouth, and will teach you what you shall do. And he shall be thy spokesman unto the people, and he shall be even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of a God. So the, look at what's happening here. Moses has this concern. He expresses it to the Lord. The Lord is a little upset with him because, Moses, just trust me. I, I will get you through this. Nonetheless, he, in his mercy, says, this is what we're going to do. Your brother Aaron, who I know can speak well, is going to be your mouthpiece. He's going to be your prophet. And you're going to be the one, Moses, you're going to hear from me, and you're going to tell him, Aaron, what he's supposed to say. And his only job is to speak those things that you speak. He's your spokesman. It's the same word. So we have here God defining what that relationship, what that prophet relationship looks like. It looks like you hear from the Lord what you're supposed to say, and you say what God tells you. And that's it. That's what it means. That's how simple it really is. And if we go back to Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, and the Lord said unto Moses, See, I have made thee a god, little g god, to Pharaoh. He's confirming Moses' authority, and he's, made, he's representing him. And Aaron, thy brother, shall be thy prophet, shall be your spokesperson, shall be your mouthpiece. He's going to do your talking. This is the, this is the relationship. That's how simple it is. That's what a prophet does. So a prophet is the mouthpiece of God. He received and proclaimed the message given to him from God. As I thought about this this week, I'm almost a little embarrassed to admit it, but as I thought about this this week, the theme that came to my mind more often than not, because I think it, as annoying as I might find it, it represents well this message proclaiming idea of prophecy is the veggie tells Jonah because they're not asking him what is the future they're asking him what is the message from the Lord 
What has God said? What is the word of the Lord for us? And there's a whole song and dance number about it, right? Yeah, no, no. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> they probably do. But like I said, it's kind of silly, but it, it represents this idea that the prophet isn't somehow tickling our fancy when it comes to predictive. It's an inherent part of it. He's not predicting the future per se. His job is to proclaim what God has said. Okay. Uh, turns me to Exodus chapter three. In Exodus chapter three, uh, again, we're picking up that scene where Moses is interacting with, uh, and, and I and I come here because this is the first place where it gets dealt with specifically. I would not say that Moses is the first prophet, but uh, that aside, this is where we in, this is where we encounter it in specificity first. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, we find Moses commissioned. He says, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So the prophet had a very specific calling. This is your job. You're going to be the, the mouthpiece for me. You're going to speak on my behalf. You will take my people, Moses, and you will lead them out of Egypt. And, and while that's a part of it, that isn't the prophetic part of Moses's role. The prophetic part of Moses's role is to be this interaction to receive what God has said and tell the people that message. And we see that throughout. We see it in his interactions with Pharaoh. We see it with his interactions with the nation of, of Israel uh, more than once. I mean, very frequently. Turns me to, for an example, Turn with me to Exodus 14. Exodus chapter 14. We could have looked at many, many places. Anywhere as you read through the book of Exodus and you see the Lord speaking to Moses and saying, tell the people. And then Moses goes and tells them he's operating within that prophetic office. He's literally taking the message of God to the people. So in Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they turn in and camp before Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, over against Baal, Zephon. Before it shall you encamp by the sea. And this is where God tells him to go down this little narrow path. There's only one way in. Camp by the Red Sea. And he's about to part the Red Sea and destroy Pharaoh's armies in the process. Hey, but God, here, here's an example where the Lord speaks to Moses. This is the message. And Moses takes that message and tells the people. Now, turns me to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18. As the nation of Israel is preparing, uh, and part of that preparation to enter into the promised land is to reiterate and reconfirm the law of God. This is, this is where we encounter in Scripture the first qualifications or the first uh, sort of test, if you will, of what a prophet is in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And I'm going to look in verse 15. Now, now this is uh, twofold. This is speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, giving them specific instruction about what a prophet is like and what they should do and what they shouldn't do. 
but it's also, and, and we know this from the New Testament, this is a pro prophecy of Jesus Christ. He is the prophet that's being spoken of in the long term. So oftentimes there are these uh, dual fulfillments, if I can phrase it that way. The beginning of verse 15, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee. Now, why is he going to do that? Because Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. He, he ruined that for himself in some respect because he, because of his, because he had a short fuse. So he doesn't get to go into the promised land. Um, so he's telling this, what's going to happen, but God is going to raise up a prophet uh, from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, and unto him shall you hearken. You're going to listen to him. According to all that thou desires of the Lord thy God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, neither let me see this great fire any more that I die not. You remember that when God encounters them there on Mount Horeb, the people are terrified. And they don't want to have this direct interaction. They want somebody in between. And Moses gets to be that guy. And the Lord said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. What is his job? To say what God has told him to say. Verse 19, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. There is an obedience that God expects from the word. When the prophet speaks, and this is his guy, it's the Lord speaking to us. And so there's an expectation that we listen and that we operate, just as there is an expectation that they would follow Moses through the wilderness and listen to him. That's the same expectation going forward. It's God speaking through someone. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. Just because you're a prophet doesn't mean that you're always speaking on behalf of God. And so don't ascribe that divine authority to your own opinions, to your own thoughts. That's what he's saying. When the Lord doesn't say, Moses, go and tell the people, and Moses says, thus saith the Lord, Moses gets put to death. When the other prophets say, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not said, those prophets are put to death. Or when they prophesy in the name of other gods. So false prophets, these who would come, the prophets of Baal, the prophets that we encounter with Elijah there on Mount Carmel, they should have been put to death. That's what Israel should have done. Verse 21, And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing follows not, nor comes to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. But the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, thou shalt not be afraid of him. In the book of Jeremiah, and we looked at this as we laid out the historical foundation for the book of Daniel, we have this interaction with the people. Here's Jeremiah telling them judgment and destruction of Jerusalem is coming because we have sinned and we will not repent. And here are these others saying, that's not going to happen. 
they were false prophets. And it was confirmed that they were false prophets because what they said was going to happen did not come to pass. God's word is axiomatic. Can you remember that word? It means that it's self-authenticating. The Bible is the only book in the world that authenticates itself predictively and says, this is what's going to happen. And with 100% accuracy, and not only just accuracy, but specificity, they're not general, they're not Nostradamus sort of anything could sort of fall in this category predictions. These are specific. God has confirmed his word and the authority of it. It's divine inspiration by proving it through prophecy and the fulfillment of that prophecy. And to prevent any confusion or any false worship, God says, listen, if it doesn't come to pass, put that person to death. Wipe them out. Now, I want to just very briefly, prediction and prophecy. It's an inherent part of it. It's an inherent part of it. And today we tend to focus on that predictive part. Um, we miss that it was given and the context that it was given in. Uh, and it also falls within the purposes of God, which we're going to get to. We're going to talk about the purposes of God in prophecy. But here's the thing. This is the takeaway. This is what I want you to understand. The primary work of a prophet, his primary function, his primary task was not to satisfy curiosity about the future. They didn't know when it was going to happen. They didn't know perhaps exactly how it was going to happen, but they knew that God had said their job was to take what God had said and declare that message. That was it. That was their primary function. That's what prophecy is all about. It is the word of God spoken by his prophet. That's it. Now, we, we like to look at this predictive portion, and for many respects, we as believers, the reason we like to is because it's part of the hope that we have as believers. We're looking forward to the redemption of creation. We're looking forward to the, to the full uh, manifestation, if I can just phrase it that way, of the kingdom of God. We're looking forward to those things. And we see that they're predicted in Scripture. We see that they, they are given to us by, and, and so therefore we know that they're going to happen. What we do, what I think we do uh, damage to is when we look at what's happening in the world around us, and this has happened since these prophecies were uttered, and we say, aha, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is it. We're here in, this, in these times. The only way to know that you're in those times, according to Deuteronomy 18, is that it came to pass. That's the only way. God didn't say, look, watch out for these things. We can recognize that, hey, we're, this, is, this looks like something, but we may have misinterpreted that. We may have misidentified it. The only way to know with certainty that this is the fulfillment of Scripture, is that it has come to pass, and it is fulfilled prophetic utterance. And I take that from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. So when we, when we talk about 
world events and we talk about these things, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to delve into this a little bit deeper. We're inferring our opinion and our own interpretation upon Scripture. And we're saying, I know as much as God knows, which is a no-no. So how do we interpret Scripture? Well, number one, context, right? Should be no surprise to us because we've talked about hermeneutics and interpreting Scripture. Context, 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 and even more context. Historical background is very important. We took an awful lot of time and we looked at Daniel. We looked at where the nation of Israel was. We looked at uh, Jeremiah and his prophecies coming into the study of that book. We laid a foundation of understanding because the context, the historical background in which these prophecies are happening is key to our understanding. And I have a quote here, and I don't often put quotes in our notes, but it says the prophecies were not given simply to write a book that should be helped for future ages. Everything that God included in the Bible was of real importance for his people throughout the ages, yet the prophets spoke directly to the people in their time. In other words, what was happening, they understood this is prophecy. They understood this is happening now. They understood when the fulfillment came because they saw it. It came to pass. And even if it's uh, something looking forward to, for example, the coming of the Messiah, which is a big portion of prophecy, looking forward to those, those things, there was an understanding that this is applicable now and it's applicable in the future. In the same way that we look at those prophecies that are yet to happen and we have hope and expectation for them, they had hope and expectation looking forward. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, they have expectations of what he should be like. Now, their expectations were wrong because they had made uh, the Messiah, in many respects, an idol. They didn't take what the Word of God had said. They did what we are, in fact, I think, guilty of in many respects today and imposed their opinion about what the Messiah should do upon the Scripture and didn't say, this is what the Messiah will do because this is what God has said. Context is extremely important if we're going to interpret correctly. It turns me to Genesis chapter 22. Let's illustrate this. Genesis chapter 22. And I want to look at verses 16 through 18. Now here in this passage, we've got uh, Abraham, and he's taken Isaac up to the top of uh, Mount Moriah, and they are there, and he's about to plunge the knife in, and you guys know the story. This, the angel of the Lord stops him, and there's the ram caught in the thicket, all of that, that. That's what's happening. That's where this is coming from. And then in verse 16, the angel of the Lord is speaking to Abraham, uh, and he says, "Myself, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord. For because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. 
Now, here's the thing. There's context involved in this. God has already made promise to Abraham. God has already promised him those things. This means something directly to Abraham. This means something directly to him. He he knows with certainty, and in fact, we know this from the book of Hebrews, that even as they're heading up the hill to offer his only son, he believed that if if it was necessary to fulfill the purposes of God related to Isaac, he would raise him from the dead. And that's in Hebrews chapter 11. We we read that, and that's part of the faith that he was operating in. So, we have this understanding that this meant something to Abraham right here, right now. He also realized that this is something future. Not all nations knew who Abraham was. Not all nations were going to be blessed by him in the next few years. So he has this expectation that this is something now. This is a promise that God is making, yet it's something that will be fulfilled in the future. It was directed and it was intended to be a blessing to Abraham. It was to be an encouragement to him. But it was also a promise of the redemptive purpose of mankind. And we, from the New Testament, as we look at this blessing to all nations, and we find that that is uh, really a prophetic promise that the Messiah will be the Savior of the world, not just Israel, not just the descendants of Abraham, but all nations. So the context that we're looking at this in, it means something for them there. In the time that they received that prophecy, the context, the historical background in which it was given, the more time we spend there, I'm just going to suggest, the easier, quote-unquote easier, the more thorough, the more accurate interpretation we'll end up with. First, context. Secondly, and this is also not new, the explicit constrains the implicit. What God has said, clearly stated, constrains what is implied or what may be implied. Let's look at an example here in Daniel. We're not going to get into it real deep this morning, but in Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 35, and I want to read that this morning, we have Daniel giving Nebuchadnezzar what the dream was. He hasn't gotten to the interpretation yet, that's next, but he tells him what the dream was. So he says, thou, O king, sawest and beheld a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The head, the image of the head, the image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet, there were uh, that were of iron and clay, and break them into pieces. Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together. It became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away with no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Okay, so here we have, this is what happened, this is what was described, and as we get into the interpretation, we're going to get into that next week, there's two things that we know clearly, okay? 
there's more than two things we know clearly, but just for example, this morning, right? We have these kingdoms. There are four kingdoms here. Only two of them do we know with absolute certainty which kingdoms they are. The first one being Nebuchadnezzar, if we look in verse 38. Oh, excuse me, verse 37. Thou, O king, art a king of kings for the God of heaven. No, verse 37. Thou art this head of gold. He tells him, you are this head of gold. Nebuchadnezzar, this head of gold represents you and your empire. We have that complicit. There's no wiggle room in that. We understand that is exactly what he said. And then as we get into verses 44 and 45, and we talk about this stone that was cut out without hands, and that it smashes this statue and all the kingdoms that are represented there, and then fills the whole earth. We know with certainty... Because it says, and in these days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. This is the kingdom of God. We know that complicitly. It is explicit. Here's the other thing, though. There's two other kingdoms. Scripture doesn't tell us what those kingdoms are. It does not say that this is the Medo-Persian Empire. It does not say that this is the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire. It doesn't say that. We infer that. We have a pretty good idea about those kingdoms because we look at what, what else is, as we, as we look at the progressive revelation, the portion of Scripture that we see here, and we see all of those things happening, we can infer that with some certainty, but I am less than absolutely certain that that is the kingdoms that are being talked about. God didn't say explicitly, this is who they were. It's just another kingdom. So the, the explicit constrains the implicit. It, with, it holds it back. We can't imply upon something with absolute certainty that which God has not said. So as we go into this next week, I'm going to suggest that here, here are what the kingdoms are, and we're going to have to talk about why I think that's the case. But you have to understand, and I'll reiterate this, it's the best that we can infer from Scripture. Can I be absolutely sure? I'm not absolutely sure. And I don't think that anybody can be. When we look at prophecy, that which is explicit will always restrain, will hold and constrain that which might be implied. And that's a key to interpreting Scripture, period. But when we get into prophecy, what happens is that which must be implied often is grabbed onto and used to change that which God has said, that which he has explicitly said. Number three, progressive revelation. We have to understand that often prophecies build upon or clarify past prophecies as God further reveals his purpose. Okay, and I'm going to use one example here. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we have the Proto-Evangelion, the first utterance, promise of God, prophetic utterance in regard to the Messiah, to the Savior. As God is dealing, doling out the consequences for Adam and Eve's sinful rejection of the one command, which is ultimately a sinful rejection of him, he says, this is what's going to happen. The serpent, he's going to 
bite the heel of the son of the woman. It's going to bruise the heel, excuse me. And the son of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Okay, this is this is a big thing. This is something that it doesn't make total sense. But God expounds upon that throughout the rest of Scripture. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 12 and we look at the Passover, right here is the nation of Israel in bondage in Egypt. And God says, this is the last plague that I'm going to send. And this is what it is. The firstborn of every household is going to be taken unless, unless you follow through with everything I'm about to command you. You take a, a lamb from the flock, a male lamb, and you take him into your household a few days beforehand. And then you take him in the doorway and you kill that lamb and you apply the blood to the doorposts and you eat that lamb. And if your family's not big enough to eat it, then have your neighbors over, get some people together and whatever might be left, burn it in the fire. Oh, and by the way, don't break any bones. We have some very clear pictures throughout that. And then as we progress through scripture, we see even more and more clearly, we understand this, right? This is, been, this is what we've been learning in Sunday school. But this, this progressive revelation, oftentimes, if we look, sometimes what happens is we jump right in the middle. And that's in some sense, that's what we've done in Daniel, right? We, we just, here we are in a book in the Old Testament, sort of in the middle. There's some prophetic things happening in that book. If we want to understand it, if there's any progressive revelation up to that point, we need to go back and look at those things and see the clarification that God is bringing. So if we're going to understand these prophecies, we need to take the time to go back and look. That historical context is going to reveal those things where God is progressively revealing his purpose. By the time we get to Isaiah 53, we have a very clear picture, right? This, these are part of our memory verses last week, but in Isaiah 53, 1 through 6, and I want to turn there and read it. Because we go from... The serpent shall bruise the heel of the son of the woman, and the son of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent to something incredibly specific. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we come from this head-crushing son of the woman to 
somebody who is going to come and is going to lay down his life on our behalf, who is going to be uh, considered by the world to be, this guy must have been so bad. Here he is hanging with other sinners. He's afflicted. He's smitten by God, yet on our behalf, he was wounded for our transgressions. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord laid upon him, giving us not only building upon this idea that we see in Exodus chapter 12, the shedding of blood and this substitutionary death and the passing over, this progressive revelation. And then we get into the New Testament. We see Jesus Christ, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's what progressive revelation is all about. But as we look at prophecy, what we're going to find is that there are a lot of prophecies in there about the same thing. We're going to find it in Daniel. Daniel chapter 2 Daniel chapter 7 are about kingdoms. One is illustrated by the statue, one is illustrated by these beasts. But they're, they're illustrating the same thing. And I'm convinced it's the same kingdoms. God is giving us some further clarity in Daniel 7 that we don't have in Daniel 2. Progressively revealing something and building upon that. Some of the key doctrines that we have revealed to us and clarified throughout Scripture by this process of progressive revelation is the Trinity, which is a big deal, the deity of the Messiah. I mean, we have that right way, way back in Genesis 3.15, the son of the woman. But, it, but what does that mean until we get to a virgin birth? Justification by grace and by grace alone. The inclusion of the Gentiles in salvation, in God's redemptive purpose. It's alluded to, and then we have this great clarity in Christ. These are key doctrines, and God, in many respects, took those key doctrines and he revealed them progressively. So we have to acknowledge that when we're looking at prophecy and we're trying to interpret it, that there may be a progressive revelation. There may be something further on in Scripture that's going to clarify. There may be something further back in Scripture that's going to be foundational to our understanding. Prophecy takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time to engage in. Number four, as we interpret prophecy, we have to acknowledge, we have to understand the divine oversight of the contents of the Bible. Again, another quote from the same person. I don't know who A.A. McRae is, but I read an article a couple weeks ago that he wrote, and there were some good things in there. And this is another thing that he said. Any study of the prophetical books that is to unlock their true message must have this as a basic principle. God inspired the writers in such a way that what was written down for permanent retention as part of his enduring message to his people should be complete in itself. Should be complete in itself. What does that mean? It means that the news is not an interpretation of prophecy. Scripture interprets Scripture. Outside data does not interpret Scripture. That makes sense? And the other thing that we need to be careful of is going the other way and saying, this is what God has said, and therefore I'm going to cram it onto the current events that I witnessed around me today. 
The only way to be sure that this is fulfilled prophecy is that it is now fulfilled prophecy, that it comes to pass. Turns me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Let's read verse 8 this morning. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Here is the Old Testament being clarified. Now, and what does it say? Then the scripture, the foundation for understanding this promise to Abraham that in all that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed is found in scripture. It's not found in anything else. It's not found in the world around us or current events. It's found in scripture. Now we can make this conclusion from the Old Testament even, but here's what we find in the New Testament. We find this 100% it's progressive revelation. We we find the, this intent that God is trying to redeem all of mankind, and that was part of the promise to Abraham. But this is it. God clarifies. He makes it, the interpretation is not left up for grabs. God makes it plain here, and he does so in the Word of God. Why? It's part of the reason that we say, listen, this is it. This book from Genesis to Revelation is complete and whole in and of itself. Most other religions follow this principle of abrogation. And all that means is that new prophecy can overrule and overwrite old prophecy. Very convenient, isn't it? Either it didn't come to pass, so now we have new prophecy that says, well, it didn't have to come to pass because now we have this new thing, or... It's an inconvenient thing, so now we have this new word from the Lord, and this is what we're doing. The book of, the word of God is complete. It's finished. There isn't new revelation in the sense that God is now giving new scripture. When we come to a prophecy and we talk about it in a New Testament context, because there are prophets discussed in the book of Acts, for example. They're not bringing the word of God. You don't find them written down. It's not, here it is. This is the word of God. They're taking the message of God, which has been recorded, and they're speaking that as truth. But they're not saying, thus saith the Lord, and giving us something that has not been recorded. Scripture interprets scripture, and no outside data whether it's somebody claiming to be divinely inspired or whether it's current events or whatever it may be, Scripture interprets Scripture. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10, let's look at verse 4. We looked at this last week in Sunday school. And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. 
We have this clarification. We have this picture, this progressive revelation of what is happening, and then we see here the clear interpretation of it. God doesn't leave us guessing. He says, this is it. This is what I meant by that. This is what I was representing. This is how it illustrated Christ. So we start simple and we move toward the complex. We start simple and we move toward the complex. This is what we do in the uh, biblical inference of Daniel's kingdoms. So I say, I said we, we can with some certainty, with, with some good study, we can infer with relative confidence, this is what, these are the kingdoms, these are the other kingdoms. And that's based upon a starting it. Here's Daniel. This is what he this is where he starts, and we have a very clear timeline laid out because this is Nebuchadnezzar. And then we look at the other kingdoms that are there. And here's the thing: if we look at history as a whole, we step outside of the Bible for just a moment. We look at history as a whole. There's hundreds of kingdoms from Babylon to the end. Hundreds of kingdoms. First of all, most of those are off the table because they're nowhere mentioned in Scripture. They're not discussed. They're not talked about. We don't find them anywhere. And so if we're going to interpret, if we're going to use Scripture to interpret Scripture, we remove all of those, we step back into the Word of God, and we're left with only a few options. Because from Daniel to the New Testament, there's only a few kingdoms mentioned. There's only a few kingdoms that are discussed as existing in that day. So like I said, start at the simple, move toward the complex. We can make some inference. We can imply that these are probably the kingdoms based upon scholarly study. Am I certain of it? No, but I think it's at least close. Let me ask you this, though. Does it matter if we know what those other two kingdoms are? Nope. Does not change the prophecy one bit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 16, that's where when we looked at this last uh, couple weeks ago, that's where Peter is there at Pentecost, and he says, listen, this is what was spoken of by Joel the prophet. And we looked at Joel chapter 2. Your old men are going to dream dreams, and we, we talked about dreams briefly at that point, but that's that. there it is. Here's the scripture interpreting the scripture. God has sovereign oversight over his word. And he's going to interpret it in his word. So, I want to spend the rest of this morning looking at the purpose of prophecy. God has several purposes for prophecy. Understanding what these are are going to help us to identify and to interpret. First of all, identify a prophecy. Is this something that is prophetic or not? When we get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we look at it and we understand it as a prophetic word because we know there's this redemptive purpose. We have the whole of Scripture. There's some predictive event in there because God has said the, the, seed, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And at that point, as far as we can tell, Adam and Eve didn't have any kids. Cain and Abel weren't born yet. So there's some predictive looking forward element to that. But it's going to help us to identify, is this prophecy? And it's going to give us clues on how we interpret that. Of all the purposes of God, all of the purposes of God in prophecy will be a means to communicate to mankind. 
God didn't give prophecy. He didn't speak his word into existence for no reason. He did it to communicate to you and I about who he is, about his plans and purpose to redeem mankind, about things that are yet to come. All of that he's given us to communicate with us. So the first and by far the largest purpose of prophecy in Scripture is rebuke, correction. The majority of biblical prophecy is God getting after Israel. And I'll just throw this out there for your consideration. And Jonah is a good example, right? Here's Jonah. He is a prophet. He gets sent to Nineveh. Why does he not want to go to Nineveh? Well, he tells us, he says, because God, I know you're a God of mercy. And if they repent, you'll forgive them. And I don't like them. And so I want to see them toasted. Right? I mean, that's maybe the shortened VeggieTales version, but that's kind of what happens in Scripture. And that's what he says. I know that you're a God of mercy, and if they repent, you'll forgive them. So he doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to take the message that God has given him. Why? Because the message he's given him has condition. If you repent, I'll forgive you. If you don't repent, judgment is coming. There's rebuke. Rebuke is correction. That means that if we respond to the correction, the judgment that was promised doesn't come. And so when you read through most of the Old Testament prophets, when they're dealing with rebuke, you have a couple of things. Number one, here's the rebuke. This is a correction. This is where you're at. Number two, this is the condition. If this is your response, this will happen. God will forgive you. God will return you. God will restore you. The promised judgment won't happen. God leaves it clear. But most of prophecy is rebuke, which is odd because most of the time when we think about prophecy, we think about the future, what's going to happen. But most of it is simply rebuke, God correcting his people. Why? Because the prophet is saying what God has told them to say. In Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah chapter 1, God is rebuking his people. You could read You could probably, not probably, you could really open to any book in the Old Testament. Any any of the minor prophets, any of the major prophets. And what you would find with very few exceptions, Nahum being an exception, we're going to actually look at Nahum just a little bit this morning. God is correcting his people. And if he's not correcting his people, he's rebuking some other nation. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his owner, and the ass his master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people doth not consider. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. And if you read Isaiah with the few with the exceptions of the places where the we're getting we'll get to the second purpose of prophecy here in just a moment, where that's at play, that's what it reads like. If you read Jeremiah, that's what it reads like. Most of prophecy is rebuke. God's judgment of other nations. 
in Babylon. So, so God's correcting his people. There's a couple of examples here. God's judgment of other nations in Jeremiah chapter 51. Even though Babylon is the instrument of correction that God is using with his people, they have their own iniquity, have their own sinfulness, and God is not going to condone that. So in, in Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 1 and 2, there's prophecy about the nation of Babylon being corrected by God. Nahum is a prophet, and his ministry, the place where he was supposed to take the word, was to Assyria, Nineveh, the same place that Jonah went. Nineveh being the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And here it is, here's correction. It's interesting to me that of the, that there's an entire prophet dedicated to this city, the capital of this empire, that had previously repented before the Lord. I just find that interesting. I haven't thought much about it more than that, but I just find it interesting. You don't find it of all the other nations that are out there. We also find in re, under that same rebuke heading that a lot of a lot of the rebuke that is coming is con, God's just condemnation of sin. Most of it's about the, the 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 nations, but but it's in regard to their sin. Genesis chapter two. If you just turn there with me. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. So this is God's word regarding sin. When you reject me, when you sin against me, death is the result. And then we get, turn with me to Isaiah 59, sort of a progressive revelation look at a doctrine of sin in, in three passages, which is not enough, by the way, but for sake of brevity. Okay, so that's what God said. He told he, he was his own prophet in some respect to Adam and Eve, and he says, when you eat of the tree, when you sin against me, you'll die. That's it. It's the word of God on, uh, <laughs> regarding sin. It's simple. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, neither is his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. This separation between man and God is a result of our sinfulness. It's a prophetic confirmation of the condemnation of sin. As we get into Romans chapter 5, we look at verse 12. Death came by sin. Then it turns me quickly to Ezekiel chapter 18. Because we... I mean, we have the entire backlog of Scripture up to this point about who God is and His just position in the condemnation of sin. But in this verse, we have it summed up for us. In Ezekiel 18, verse 4, it says, Behold, this is God speaking, Behold, all souls are mine. 
All souls are mine. Why are they his? Because he made them. He is the creator. As the soul of the father, so also the soul of the son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall die. God's just position as creator. So when we talk about rebuke and that being the chief component, I mean, that is what most of prophecy is about, is rebuke correction. First of all, it's God rebuking his nation, his people, Israel. And then he corrects other nations. And then he talks about there's a lot of prophecy in regard to this just condemnation of sin. If I had to throw a number at it, a percentage of prophecy that it's caught up in rebuke, it's going to be probably 80%. And that's me just throwing a number out there, but it's a lot. (laughs) Okay, it's a lot. So God's first purpose in prophecy is rebuke, correcting his people. The prophet coming, here's the word of the Lord for you. When, if we were going to make veggie tales accurate, when the people come to Jonah and say, What's the word of the Lord? He would have said, you sinners, stop it. That would be a more accurate veggie tales. Wouldn't have been in the song and dance number. It would have been like a funeral dread. You know, that's, that would be a more accurate representation because that's Israel. That's God's dealing with him. That's the bulk of prophecy. All right. Number two, encouragement. This is the second purpose of God. By far less often than rebuke. But more than anything else that we're going to look at this morning, the second purpose of God in prophecy is to encourage the people of God. And what we find is that this is often intertwined. It's thrown in the mix. It's like, here's God, and Isaiah is a great example of this. Because you read through Isaiah, and it's, man, gloom and doom and correction, and you guys are terrible sinners. And then you get to Isaiah 53. And and throughout Isaiah, you have these intermixings of these uh, suffering servants, this looking forward to the Messiah and the redemption that's coming and the great clarity of prophetic utterance about the sacrifice for sin. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. I said multiple times, Jeremiah was the prophet to Judah, the kingdom that ended up in Babylon. And the bulk of Jeremiah is, this is it, you you guys need to be corrected. And he he tells them more than once, if you will repent, you won't go into exile. Did they repent? No. How do we know? Because they went into exile. They did not repent. But in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 through 8, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved, which sounds really good when all this prophet, all he's been doing is, prophesying about the exile, the correction, the chastisement you're about to receive. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord, our righteousness. 
Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that they shall no more say the Lord lives, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord liveth, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country. That's, that's Israel coming from Assyria. And from all countries, whither I have driven them, they shall dwell in their own land. The restitution or the, the, the rest, restoration, excuse me, the restoration of Israel as a country. And looking forward to that. Here we are scattered. We have Israel that's been to Assyria in exile. We have Judah who's in Babylon in exile. This scattered people, and we talked about this, right? That for a long period of time, centuries, they had no homeland. Yet they existed as a people. And we look at this, and that's after all of this happens. We have this word of encouragement in the middle of it. It's going to be bad, guys. It's going to be really bad. I'm correcting you, but here it is. The Lord, our righteousness. Even in Daniel chapter 2, as he talks about the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and he's talking about uh, in the days of these kings, verse 44, all the king, all of these kings, stop. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. And this isn't the first time we read something like this. If you turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 9, this is where Handel takes the Messiah that masterful piece of what we relegate to Christmas music, but it's much more than that. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the establishment of a kingdom. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. What is his name? He is the everlasting God. Of the increase of his government, his kingdom, and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon the kingdom, his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Or even in the midst of Isaiah and in, in, in his proclamation of coming judgment, future judgment. You find prophecies in Isaiah about the, the exile of Judah, and that's, it's a hundred years away. God gave them plenty of time to repent, and they chose not to, but he, we have this in the middle of that. God is establishing his government, and that kingdom will never end. He'll order the kingdom of David forever, and not only that, it's not dependent upon you. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. And Isaiah 53 is another example. The encouragement that God gives to his people in the midst of all of the hard stuff that he gives them. Don't miss the encouragement that he gives them. Number three, and this is, by comparison, this is very minor, but we find revelation of facts about God and his creation. Most of the time, this stuff is caught up. It's tied within the greater message. 
Uh, turn with me to Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, verse 8. He says, in a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. So what we find specifically about the Lord, he is our Redeemer. What did God say about himself? I am the Redeemer. I am the Messiah. I'm going to be the one. This is a significant statement, but it's something that is revealed about God. As we get into Daniel, we look at the Son of Man. The Son of Man, think Genesis 3.15, right here he is, Jesus taking on flesh. We look at that, the Son of Man, it's the incarnation. And then we talk about the Ancient of Days, and that's a reference to God himself. What What was the name that God gave Moses there at the burning bush? I am that I am. I am self-existent, Ancient of Days. Before time began, I existed. I was ancient before time began. That's what it means. That's what it's getting to. We reveal these little parts, these characteristics of who God is, and even parts of his creation in prophecy. We also find that one of the, another purpose of prophecy that God uses is to give information on the action to be taken at a specific occasion. This is what I want you to do. We looked at one this morning in Exodus chapter 14. God says, Moses, tell the people to go to this specific place. And that's what they did in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus is an easy, it was low-hanging fruit here because over and over and over, God tells them, Moses, go here, do that. It's very, it was easy to get there. Uh, let's look at Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. And all the congregation of the children of Israel journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys, according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. So God specifically, and we talked about this last week in Sunday school, I realized, God specifically told them to go here. Why would God specifically tell them to go somewhere where there was no water? He's doing something to reveal something, isn't he? And we know that because we studied it last week. Here it is, and we go through this whole scene, this whole process where the people complain against Moses, and Moses is even worried they're going to murder him. And God says, Moses, grab your staff, that symbol of authority that I've given you, and we're going to stand here. And God says, I will stand on the rock. I'm going to, in this courtroom scene, I'm going to stand on the rock of judgment. And Moses, I want you to strike the rock. And what happens? Water comes out. Water comes out. Interesting picture of Jesus Christ, who stood on the rock of judgment on our behalf, and when stricken, Life-giving water, John chapter 4. God over and over uses prophecy, uses his man on the street, so to speak, to say, this is what we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. This is the specific action I need you to take. Fifth, he authenticates 
uh, those that he has divinely appointed, whether it's leaders or prophets, kings, governors, rulers, or prophets. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 44, uh, that's where a hundred years before Cyrus was ever born, God says, this is going to be the guy and names him by name who will rebuild the temple, who will release Judah from exile, releases Judah from exile, and they will go and build the temple. And, And he funds the whole thing. It authenticates that that was the guy that he was God's man, that he was the leader that he had appointed. You remember when they were complaining against Aaron? And God said, listen, here's what we're going to do. Everyone who thinks they've got a claim, lay down your stick. And Aaron lays his down. And the next day they come back and Aaron's rod is budded and born fruit. He has the almonds there. They did exactly what God told them to do. They followed the words of Moses, God's mouthpiece, and God confirmed who was going to be the the priest, what lineage they were going to have. So God uses the, the authentication. He authenticates by prophecy those that he has divinely appointed, leaders, prophets, those in charge. All right, number six, this is the last purpose of prophecy. It lays the foundation for the climax of all divine activity in the work of the future Messiah. It lays the foundation for the climax of all divine activity in the work of the future Messiah. The redemptive purpose of God is revealed everywhere. In Isaiah chapter 7, turn there and read it. Isaiah chapter 7. King Ahaz, who is a descendant of David, but not not a worthy king, if we just phrase it that way. And this is what God says. Isaiah 7, verses 9 through 14. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. All right, so, and this is, I bring this verse, we start here because this is what's happening to Ahaz. He does not believe, and so therefore he is not established. That's what's happening. That's, that's the context, just by real quick, one verse context. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask the assign of the Lord thy God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. And Ahab said, Ahaz says, I will, not, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. And this is the Lord speaking. Hear ye now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary me, men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall, and shall call his name Emmanuel. The redemptive purpose of God, as we have these prophecies to Ahaz, and here's the thing, it means something to Ahaz. Right? This was specific to him. He knew he was being disposed of as king. There was an understanding there. He wasn't worthy to be, continue that lineage. 
But there's also this future understanding, this looking forward to Emmanuel. As we think about Isaiah and all of those things, Isaiah 40 through 52, just broadly, God reveals that the reason for the Babylonian exile is sin. And he also reveals in those chapters that a permanent solution for sin has to be found. And if there isn't a permanent solution for that sin problem found, then any deliverance they may have from that is only a temporary reprieve. It's just temporary. Which is really, if we look back and we look at the progressive revelation of God throughout all of, all of the sacrifices and those things, this temporary covering, this temporary reprieve from sin. Remember, there's a covering of sin. And then in Jeremiah, he prophesies about the forgiveness of sin. And then we get to Isaiah 52, about verse 12, and all the way through Isaiah 53, 12. And we see who and what the solution, the permanent solution for sin is. It's Jesus Christ. It's the expiatory work of Jesus Christ. Okay, God lays, uses this uh, to lay this foundation for, this, for the climax, to reveal this purpose throughout all of history. That's it. That's what I wanted to talk about in regard to prophecy. If we understand uh, what, what God has here, if we understand what a prophet is first, right? Not primarily dealing with future things. That's an inherent part of it. But he's God's mouthpiece. He's speaking the message that God has. And we look at it and we understand that, that uh, there is context. That there are tools that we need to employ in our understanding and in our interpretation of prophecy. We can't separate it. We can't divorce it from its historical context. We, we, we need to understand that the things that are explicit will restrain the, what is implied. We understand that it's part of God's progressive revelation. We understand that God, that God has divine oversight about all of the contents of the Bible. <clears throat> when we begin to think about prophecy and what it is and God's purposes in it, how he uses it, those six purposes, whether it's rebuke, whether it's uh, encouragement, whether it's uh, giving specific direction to his people, we need to identify as we look at prophecy, what is he doing here? What purpose is he practicing? And I'll tell you, it may be more than one at the same time. But if we take these tools and we look at these foundational things in regard to prophecy, we say, listen, when we encounter prophecy, as we get into Daniel, because he makes it very clear, God, Nebuchadnezzar, God has shown you what is going to happen. This is some predictive event. This is something future. And he makes it very clear that God has revealed something. Nebuchadnezzar, you will get to be the mouthpiece for this moment in the revelation of this thing that God is going to do. And it's nothing new necessarily, but here it is. We encounter it in another form, in another uh, means of conveying that message, communicating it to mankind. And we look at that interpretation and, we, and we, 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 we take the time to do the study, to put in the effort, to, to read 
what it says, to compare it and look at whatever progressive revelation. Is there anything back here I need to look at? Is there anything up here that clarifies that further? And we do that work. What we're going to find is, is a couple of things. Number one, we have a much better understanding of Scripture. We have a much more thorough understanding of what God is conveying to us throughout history. Number two, what we're going to find is we still have a lot of questions about prophecy. Like I said, in Daniel chapter two, we can look at it and we can infer, we can imply, I think it is these kingdoms based on a careful study, but I am not certain. I still have questions about the other two kingdoms, but I can safely say it doesn't matter. Those two kingdoms, if I don't know what they are, it doesn't matter. It's still sure. It's still something that God has said. If it mattered, God would have named them specifically. So what that means is when we come through and we study prophecy, when we come to the end, and I, boy, I still have questions. That's okay. We don't have to have every answer because God did not give us every answer. I'm not saying over and over in engage in the word tomorrow and then when you when you come through and you, oh you know that reminds me of this and maybe other connections are made in our hearts and minds as the spirit instructs us and leads us we'll, we may never know all of it in this life and that's okay i think that's by design let's pray god we praise you for the opportunity to to, to look at your word and to, to take a look at prophecy, sort of at a high-level view, Lord. And I pray that what we've studied this morning, what we've looked at, what we've considered, uh, what we've gleaned from a, a review of prophecy in Scripture, Lord, that it would help us have a firm foundation as we move forward through the book of Daniel, as we move forward in our own personal study, as we look at prophecy. It's, it's part of your word. It's, part, it's one of the categories of literature that we encounter. And God, we thank you that you've communicated to us throughout history. I thank you, Lord, for capping it, for stopping, for, for, for putting a, a book in. That we don't have to look outside of things, Lord, that you have given us everything that is necessary in your word. And God, by your grace, help us to be those who, who aren't reactive. We, we see things. We, we see the times and the seasons that we may live in. We, we understand, uh, Lord, that there are yet future events. And that, Lord, we need to be watchful and careful. But, God, that we are not living in despair or without hope. We praise you and we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the surety and the... And the abundance, Lord, of relationship with you that we experience through him and through him alone. And of adoration, Lord, for who you are, we just pray that you would receive as the offering of our lips. We ask this now, we give thanks.